And so, the rules are relaxed, but we're being encouraged to stay at home over the festive season. Nicola Sturgeon and Boris Johnson say now is not the time to let down our guard against this wicked virus. First Minister says a shorter, smaller Christmas is a safer Christmas. Distressing milestone as more than 6,000 people die of Covid in Scotland. And on the brink with Brexit, it's a narrow path towards a deal. From Caledonia Media, I'm Charles Fletcher with Scotland's favourite political show, The Week in Holyrood. Increasingly what keeps me going is that light at the end of the tunnel. You know, we've started the vaccination programme now, there's a long way to go in it. But it's hugely positive and, and the light is there at the end of the tunnel now. And I, as I've said a couple of times, there's still going to be dips in the road. So there will be weeks where we might struggle to see the light. And I, I suspect over Christmas that might be one of these times as, as we get into the depth of winter. But it's definitely there. And by the spring, hopefully all of us will be feeling a lot more optimistic about things. Um, and we will definitely be on the road, well on the road back to, if not 100% normality, because we don't know exactly when that's going to come back, then something that is much, much, much closer to normality than we're living with just now. Matanda, Fiskama. Scotland's First Minister says a shorter, smaller Christmas will make for a safer Christmas. As Nicola Sturgeon agonises and struggles with what's the best advice to give us this festive season, she's minded to note other religious festivals have had to cope with change already this year. The four nations of the UK are putting up essentially a united front. We're free to travel, mix and mingle to a degree indoors and out. But if you don't really need to, the guiding advice is stay at home, protect the NHS and save lives. We begin this week with Scotland's First Minister. One of the things that does trouble me, and I'm trying to to rectify here, is the idea that a five-day period of flexibility means that we are saying to people, for those five days you can do what you want within these limits. That's not what we're saying. It's a window of opportunity, a maximum, during which, if you must meet other people, here's what we recommend uh, that you do to make that as safe as possible. And I'm very clearly saying, in my view, within that five days, if you have to meet with another household, don't do that any more than on one day. Uh, Keep the numbers as low as possible. Keep the duration as uh, short as possible. If you can do it outdoors, do it outdoors. So we're trying to make what people may do anyway as safe as possible. But be in no doubt... Um, that my central recommendation to people is, if at all possible, uh, you should celebrate this Christmas in your own home, in your own household. That's the safest way for you and your loved ones. And that is my central recommendation to people. The fact that we are trying to put in place a framework to recognise that some people may do different things and to make that as not risk-free, because it's not risk-free, but to reduce the risk as much as possible does not mean that we are not saying very clearly stay at home in your own household if you uh, possibly can. Let's travel around the UK then with Carl Dinan from ITV News. The government has been under intense pressure to clamp down on coronavirus with tougher laws on Christmas mixing. But the Prime Minister has resisted that in favour of issuing tougher advice instead. A smaller Christmas is going to be a safer Christmas, and a shorter Christmas is a safer Christmas. So far, the UK law says three households can gather for up to five days, with extra days for travel to and from Northern Ireland. But within that, the home nations are issuing guidance. In England, the advice is to start to reduce your number of contacts from this weekend, to avoid travel from high to low prevalence areas, and to avoid overnight stays. Should people follow the rules that allow three households to mix for five days or should they be following the slightly more tightly drawn guidance? Follow the guidance uh, is what I would say to to everybody uh, across uh, all the UK uh, and uh, the rules are there set as as a maximum, not a target. Just because you can do something doesn't mean it's sensible 
in any way. I mean, you wouldn't, for example, drive at 70 miles an hour if there was a very icy road. In Scotland, the guidance is that three households can mix, but two would be better for one day only with no overnight stay. And the First Minister said only the truly committed should be mixing this Christmas. The undecided should decide against. If you haven't made plans to form a bubble yet, please don't. If you're still swithering, please decide against. And if you have made plans but think they're not really essential, perhaps think about postponing. The Welsh government's guidance had been that only two households should mix for the five days, but a short time ago the First Minister said he also now intended to make that the law. Only two households should meet together, whether it's guidance, whether it's regulations, we're just bringing the two together because the message is the same. The Northern Ireland executive meets tomorrow to consider post-Christmas restrictions, but with ambulances queuing up again outside hospitals, more Christmas guidance is also expected. There is a need not to have people alone and isolated at Christmas. Isolation, loneliness are huge issues for many, many people across Northern Ireland. But we have to balance that against keeping people safe. The guidance may be different across the nations, but the core message is the same. With the vaccine already being rolled out, this is not the time to take unnecessary risks. You might well then ask why this is not the time to toughen up the law and make it the same across the UK. And I think the answer is partly that that would have brought its own cost in terms of people's mental health at Christmas and also perhaps in terms of the government's popularity. But Chris Whitty there was absolutely clear. Relaxing the restrictions across Christmas will drive up infections, hospitalizations, and probably deaths. There are only bad options to choose from here. The question now is how high the cost of Christmas will be. In the week when Scotland reached a distressing milestone with COVID, more than 6,000 people had died here, I asked the First Minister about the clarity of the message. Yes, you can meet. No, you shouldn't. I think people will hear things in different ways sometimes and I, I always take the view if people feel a message is not clear, that's not their fault, that's my fault because I... Not for the want of trying, but somewhere along the line I've not managed to make it clear enough and I will continue to to try harder to get that right. I do think, and again I take responsibility for this as one of the, the four UK leaders, I think people have formed an impression um, that a five-day period of flexibility means that we're saying to people, use all of that flexibility for all of those five days. That is not what we're saying and that's what I'm trying to be very clear about now. It's a window of opportunity, but we're asking people to keep that window of opportunity in terms of how they behave as narrow as possible and don't open it at all if you don't have to. Um, and that's the, 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 the message that I will try to get across as clearly as possible in the period that is left to us before Christmas. And I'll have more with Nicola Sturgeon later in the programme when we sit down at St Andrew's House for our traditional Christmas interview on The Week in Holyrood. In the chamber here at Holyrood, the First Minister outlined the latest strategy in the continuing battle against COVID. So let's go into the chamber together at the Scottish Parliament, shall we, for a national review of where we are on levels, tiers and restrictions with First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. Care and caution continue to be essential. As a result, I can confirm that all 18 of the local authorities, which are currently at level three, uh, will remain at level three. While we are still seeing progress across much of the central belt as a result of the recent Level 4 restrictions, there are some areas, for example East Ayrshire, North Ayrshire and Fife, where cases have increased quite sharply in the last week. While the changes in these areas do not warrant a move to Level 4 at this stage, we will be monitoring the situation very closely over the next few days. Let me turn now specifically to the situation in Lothian. Last week, I confirmed that the city of Edinburgh and Midlothian would both remain in level three. That decision was subject to considerable scrutiny, understandably so, given that the raw indicators suggested that these areas should be at level two. However, having observed an increase in cases in the days leading up to last week's decision and applying our wider judgment, we concluded that easing restrictions would not be sensible. Unfortunately, the continued rise in cases since then suggests that this was the right decision, though I understand how difficult it was and is indeed for the people and businesses most affected by it. 
But in the past week, case numbers in the city of Edinburgh have increased by more than 40%, from 70 to 100 uh, per 100,000 of the population. And numbers in Midlothian have risen even more sharply, from 88 to 147 per 100,000. Test positivity has also increased in both areas. Our judgment remains, therefore, that it would be deeply irresponsible to ease restrictions in either the City of Edinburgh or Midlothian at a time when cases are rising sharply. Instead, our focus and that of local partners must be on encouraging maximum compliance with these restrictions to assure ourselves in the period ahead that Level 3 is capable of containing and reversing the increase. To complete consideration of Lothian, let me turn now to East Lothian. Case numbers there have increased by more than 50% in the past week, from 69 per 100,000 to 126, and this is on top of increases in the past uh, the two weeks previous to that. Unfortunately, therefore, and with obvious regret, the Cabinet has decided that East Lothian will move back to Level 3 from Friday. This is a difficult but essential decision to seek to avoid a further deterioration in the situation and keep people across Lothian as safe as is possible. I can confirm that Aberdeen City and Aberdeenshire will also move from Level 2 to Level 3 from Friday. We have been monitoring the situation in both these areas, as I have reported to Parliament uh, very closely, and have concluded that tougher restrictions do now need to be applied. In the last week alone, case numbers in Aberdeen City have increased by more than 50%, from 76 cases per 100,000 to 122 Case positivity has also increased from 3.9% to 6.1%. The increase in Aberdeenshire has not been quite as sharp as in the city, but cases there are still rising. It is therefore our judgment that level 3 restrictions are necessary to bring the situation in both Aberdeen City and Aberdeenshire back under control. I know that the move to Level 3 for East Lothian, Aberdeen City and Aberdeenshire and the continuation of Level 3 in many other areas involves real and continued difficulties for many people and for many businesses as well, particularly in the hospitality sector. However, these measures are, in our view, essential to get and keep the virus under control. It is also worth pointing out that we are not alone in Scotland in facing these challenges just now. In large parts of England, hospitality is closed completely and the whole of Wales is now under restrictions similar to our Level 3. Further afield, many countries across Europe are reimposing lockdowns as the winter months start to take their toll. However, I know that brings no comfort to those directly affected, so it is essential that government continues to do all we can to provide support. In addition uh, to existing packages of support, the Finance Secretary let, set out last week a further package of business support which is intended to provide extra help over the winter and I would encourage all eligible businesses to make full use of it. Presiding officer, the other councils currently in level two will remain there this week. Those are Angus, Argyll and Butte, Falkirk and Inverclyde. I am pleased to report that the situation in Inverclyde has remained broadly stable. However, there have been recent increases in cases in Angus and Falkirk, and we will be monitoring both of these areas carefully over the next week, and I cannot rule out a return to Level 3 for one or both of them. Finally, let me say a word about Argyll and Butte. Uh, last week, we reported a very sharp rise in cases there, but concluded that this was down to a particularly large outbreak in one workplace rather than wider community transmission. That conclusion seems to have been validated this week as case numbers have fallen again by more than 70%. This is in line with what we expected and hoped for given the previous low rates across Argyll and Butte. However, while this is positive, the clinical advice is that we should allow a transmission cycle to fully elapse before moving the area to level one. This will allow us to make sure that there has been no wider transmission from that workplace outbreak. I can therefore confirm that Argyll and Butte will remain at level two this week, but assuming no adverse change to the situation, it is likely to move to level one next week. There is one change that we will make this week, though, in recognition of the geographic diversity of Argyll and Butte. We will apply the same household rules that currently apply in some other islands to the outer Argyll Islands. Uh, Isle, Jura, Collinsey and Orinsey, Colin Tyree, Mull, Iona and the neighbouring islands of Ulva, Erid and Gometra. Uh, that means that from Friday, people on these islands will be able to meet in houses uh, in groups of up to six from a maximum of two households. 
However, I would take this opportunity to remind people in the rest of the country that staying out of each other's homes while incredibly difficult is the most important and effective way of limiting spread of the virus. Finally, I can confirm that the Highlands, Murray, Orkney, Shetland, the Western Isles, Dumfries and Galloway and the borders will all remain at level one. Presiding officer, I can also confirm that over the next two weeks we will also be using the experience of the level system to date to consider whether the specific restrictions in each level remain adequate or require amendment in any way. Broadly speaking, we think the levels approach has worked well, but we know the winter period will put it under greater pressure, uh, indeed is already putting it under greater pressure. And we also know and indeed see this in some of the data I have reported today, that case numbers are rising in some areas despite level three restrictions having been in place for some weeks. So the time is right to review this and I will report the outcome of that review to Parliament after the Christmas recess. Signing officer, I'm aware that the outcome of today's review and, of course, the wider context of it uh, in Scotland, across the UK and Europe is a very difficult one. We have been reminded again in recent days that COVID still presents a very real risk, uh, not just for us, but for countries around the world. Over the weekend, we saw Germany and the Netherlands announce extended lockdowns. And of course, as I've mentioned already, it has been confirmed that from tomorrow, the whole of London will enter England's highest tier of protection, which includes full closure of hospitality. Vaccination undoubtedly holds out a genuine hope for a return to something closer to normality in the, I hope, not too distant future. But that point is not quite here yet. For the moment, all of us need to do everything we can to limit the opportunities we give the virus to spread. Most of us, of course, will now be thinking ahead to plans for Christmas. As I said earlier, there will be a Four Nations discussion later today to take stock of recent developments, and I think that is right and proper. But for now, I would urge the utmost caution. If you can avoid mixing with other households over Christmas, especially indoors, then please do so. But if you feel it essential uh, to do so, and we have tried to be pragmatic in recognising that some people will, then please reduce your unnecessary contacts as much as possible between now and then, and of course follow all of the sensible uh, rules and mitigations. For all that the last 10 months have been really difficult, I know that for many of us the next few weeks are likely to be the toughest part of this whole experience so far. Uh, for any of us, the thought of staying away from loved ones over the Christmas period is difficult to bear. But hopefully by this time next year, all of, us will be, all of this will be starting to fade into a bad memory and we will be looking forward to a much more normal Christmas. And so this year, there is no doubt that the best gift we can give to family and friends, if at all possible, is to keep our distance, meet outdoors, if at all, and keep each other safe. And of course, for all of us, it remains essential that we stick to the current rules and guidelines. The vast majority of us, with some exceptions for island communities, should not meet in other people's houses. That is hard, but it remains necessary. If you have been dropping your guard on this recently, I ask you to please think again. If we meet outdoors or in public indoor places, we must stick to the limit of six people from a maximum of two households. Travel restrictions continue to be absolutely vital. No one who lives in a level three area should travel outside their local authority unless essential, and people from other parts of the country should not go to level three areas unless essential. As we go forward with the good news of vaccination, this week saw the emergence of a new strain of coronavirus in Glasgow and the west of Scotland. Here's the leader of the Scottish Tory group at Holyrood, Ruth Davidson. Today, can I ask the First Minister a specific question that friends and families of vulnerable care home residents will be keen to hear the answer to? Can the First Minister outline where a resident is not able to or doesn't have the capacity to consent to receiving the vaccine for whatever reason? What processes are in place to ensure that this can be delivered without undue delay? Secondly, the news of a new strain of this virus will be a cause of great concern for many people just as we start to see a light at the end of the tunnel. Yesterday afternoon, the First Minister received a briefing from the Chief Medical Officer on this development. Although we're only just learning of this and we appreciate that researchers may not yet have all the necessary details, can the First Minister go beyond her statement today and update Parliament on what work is being done to assess the virulence of the strain, the likely rate of transmission and any difference this strain has in symptoms and severity? First Minister. Um, in relation to uh, both of those questions, uh, in, 
respect of the first question about the process uh, for cases where very vulnerable older people in care homes, and this may apply to vulnerable older people in other settings, cannot consent to the vaccine, the normal power of attorney and adult with incapacity arrangements would apply. It may be helpful if I ask clinical advisers to set that out in writing for MSPs and place that in spice so that everybody, if they are being contacted by constituents or constituents' families, have that information uh, readily to hand. What I would say, uh, hopefully, uh, by way of assurance, is that these are issues that have to be taken into account uh, every year with the flu vaccine and with other uh, vaccination programmes and, indeed, uh, other uh, health interventions. In relation to the new strain of uh, the, the virus, uh, I think it's important to say, firstly, that we have to take this seriously, but it's equally important to say that none of us should prematurely overreact to this. Uh, the briefing I had yesterday from the Chief Medical Officer, which has been supplemented uh, later yesterday and today, with the latest information we have from genomic sequencing work in Scotland is, as I set out in my statement, that there have thus far been nine cases of this new variant uh, identified in Scotland. Uh, those uh, date back, as far as I am aware, right now to the, the latter part of November uh, and into December, but we are still awaiting information on the time series of those and whether there are any connections uh, between them and any other information uh, that uh, the researchers and scientists consider to be relevant. Uh, it is, I think, important to say uh, that none of what is currently uh, known about this yet is absolutely certain. Uh, the briefing I have had, and I think uh, this has been replicated in the information given by the UK government, is that there is nothing, and I think this is an important reassurance, there is nothing to suggest that this new variant results in more severe illness in people. There has been a suggestion uh, from initial analysis that the uh, variant of the virus may transmit more effectively and more quickly than existing variants. But again, it's important to say that that is not yet certain. It may be instead that this virus has been identified in parts of the country. In England, that would be London in the southeast, and here in Scotland, of course, Greater Glasgow and Clyde, where the virus is already spreading more rapidly, so it is giving the impression that this new variant is faster spreading. It will take further analysis to answer those questions more definitively. I'm not going to try, from a non-clinical uh, perspective, to set out exactly how that analysis is done, uh, but samples of uh, this new variant uh, are being further analysed. They have to be uh, cultured and, and then uh, analysed and compared with others. That work has been uh, taken forward through Public Health England. It is hoped that we will get more uh, information over uh, the coming days, and I would hope before Christmas. And when uh, we do, I will, of course, set that out to Parliament. Labour leader Richard Leonard picked up this week on research published in the medical journal The Lancet. It showed the much higher and disproportionate incidence of COVID-19 admissions to critical care units of patients from more deprived areas of Scotland. It also found a significantly higher incidence of COVID-related deaths in those areas. It cited factors like, and I quote here, the financial necessity to continue working, the nature of employment, that public transport may pose a significant risk, and it pointed to poor housing and crowded accommodation, all synonymous with poverty, none a matter of choice. So how seriously is the government taking the unequal impact of COVID-19 on those in Scotland living in deepest poverty? We know that the rollout of the vaccination programme rightly reflects age and occupation. But in light of today's findings, will the First Minister give higher priority to people living in Scotland's areas of highest deprivation? And will she both make available and promote the vaccine accordingly? I'll come on to uh, the specific questions about the vaccine in a moment, uh, because there are uh, well understood processes for deciding the prioritisation of any vaccination programme. Um, but on the broader issues, I am aware of uh, the research uh, published in The Lancet. This is not, these findings are not new. Uh, we have been aware uh, for most of the past 10 months that there is a disproportionate impact uh, of this virus on people living in deprived areas and also a disproportionate impact when it comes to uh, people becoming seriously ill and being hospitalised 
going into intensive care or, or perhaps dying. What has not been fully understood and is still, uh, we are still developing our understanding is what the reasons for that are. And this is true also of some of our BAME communities. Uh, and the developing understanding uh, suggests that that is uh, less to do uh, with clinical issues and more to do with societal uh, circumstances. So exactly the factors that Richard Leonard has alluded to, uh, housing conditions um, and the broader conditions in particular areas. Uh, there is a lot of work ongoing to continue to, to understand that. But right from the start of uh, the pandemic, or almost from the start, we have tried to factor that into our responses. So much of the work we've done to provide uh, additional financial support has been uh, geared towards those living in poverty and conditions of deprivation. So, in short, we take it extremely seriously, as we do all aspects of uh, this virus, and we'll continue to try to ensure that our response is tailored accordingly and, uh, and is flexible as our understanding of all of these factors continues to develop. Um, my answer to the vaccine is probably slightly uh, more complicated because we do not, in government, uh, decide unilaterally what the order of priority for vaccine is. We take uh, the recommendations from the Joint Committee on vaccination and immunisation. That's the case for all vaccination programmes and is the case for the, the COVID vaccination programme. Uh, they have uh, put forward an order of priority that is based on uh, greatest clinical risk and the order of priority uh, that they have put forward, uh, the, the first group uh, for all populations over the age of 50, by the time uh, they are vaccinated, it is estimated that that will cover more than 90% of preventable deaths. And one of the reasons for that, and again, I'm not going to go too deeply into uh, clinical territory here, because I am not uh, obviously a clinician, is that we, while we know uh, or appear to know that the vaccines, uh, and certainly the one that has been authorised so far, suppresses illness in people who are most clinically at risk, we don't yet understand its impact on transmission from one person to another. So that's another reason why we have to carefully follow the recommendations that are put forward by the experts. And of course, we will continue to promote uptake of the vaccine in these eligible groups, and we will continue to adapt our programme should the scientists advice suggests that that is appropriate. For the Scottish Greens, Patrick Harvey also notes commentary from medical journals and looks ahead to next week's Christmas relaxation. When much of the country was put into level four, the First Minister told us that that was being done in order to reduce the rate of infection so that many people could hope to have something approaching a more normal Christmas. But instead of waiting to find out whether those measures were effective... Uh, the, the, four nation, the governments of the four nations committed in advance to the Christmas relaxation, uh, a decision which the editors uh, of the Health Service Journal and British Medical Journal today have said was rash and will cost many lives. Now that we're seeing an increase again uh, in infections, uh, fully a week and a half before Christmas and a week before the Christmas relaxation comes in, doesn't it look pretty clear that the editors of these health journals are right? And what position, when the First Minister joins that Four Nations call about the review of the Christmas relaxation, what position will the First Minister advocate in that discussion on behalf of the Scottish Government? First Minister. Um, the first thing, uh, well, a couple of things I would say, first of all, the level four restrictions have reduced prevalence of the virus. And uh, if we look across most of the areas that came out of level four last week, those are the areas where the, the declines in case numbers have been most significant. Obviously, uh, we, uh, as we ease restrictions, we give the virus more opportunities to spread. And that is uh, why, perhaps counterintuitively, we need to take greater care as restrictions ease, not uh, vice versa. Uh, secondly, I, you know, people have different views on what we should do over Christmas, and I don't think the decision was rash. I, I know from my point of view, I can't speak for others, it was not rash and that it was carefully considered, as I've said before, agonised over. These decisions are always uh, agonised over uh, because they are not straightforward and there is no easy answer or black and white, absolutely right and wrong. But 
on everything, it is really important against this virus that we uh, retain the ability and the willingness to be flexible. And that's hard for people who want certainty. It's a natural human instinct uh, to want as much certainty as possible. Uh, but that's a very hard thing to give people right now. I think it is right that uh, not just because of the rise in cases, and the rise in cases uh, is less severe in Scotland right now, although this may not continue to be the case, but right now it's less severe in Scotland than it is in England or parts of England and certainly less severe than it is in Wales but nevertheless we see signs again that show that the virus uh, has not gone away. Um, so I think because of that but also because of the news yesterday about the new variant which as I said earlier we should not overreact to um, or get ahead of ourselves on but nevertheless consider whether it should lead us in the direction of any more precautions. Uh, that is another reason why I think the Four Nations call to consider what the options are, um, are would, is sensible. We uh, requested the Four Nations call uh, yesterday in the wake of the news about the new variant and I'm pleased it's taking place uh, later this afternoon. I'm not going into it with a fixed uh, view uh, because I think it's important that we have that discussion across the four nations given family patterns across the UK but I do think uh, there is a case for us looking at whether we tighten uh, the uh, flexibilities that were given uh, any further both in terms of duration um, and numbers of people uh, meeting and I will uh, consider the views of the other nations uh, if we can come to a four nations uh, agreement I think that would be preferable if that is not possible then of course we will consider within the Scottish Government what we think is appropriate and of course I will update Parliament uh, as soon as there is anything to update Parliament on. Lib Dem leader Willie Rennie says he wants more information about the continuing threat of coronavirus. I think there are some alarming indications today and we've seen outbreaks in care homes but there is an absence of information about the other drivers and sources of the spread and people I think need more detail about the current form of the threat. So what more can the First Minister tell us about what the incident management teams are telling her so that they can respond to the threat appropriately? First Minister. Um, First of all, I say to Willie Rennie, I'll give him an assurance that I am acutely aware of how close Christmas uh, is right now. And I think he is right, and I am uh, very conscious of this, that notwithstanding what I said earlier about the difficulty, uh, and I don't like this any more than anybody does, of giving people certainty in the middle of a pandemic, uh, I nevertheless am acutely aware of giving people as much certainty as no and notice as we possibly can. That said, I think it is right to discuss with the other governments and see what uh, consensus uh, we might be able to arrive at. But I will update Parliament and the public, uh, which is uh, perhaps even more important, with no disrespect to colleagues in Parliament, uh, as soon as possible. But can I make one thing very, very clear, just so that it is not lost right from the moment uh, we decided for pragmatic reasons to recognise that some people would uh, choose to see loved ones over Christmas and then and therefore try to put some boundaries around that. But right from that moment, uh, I and the Scottish Government have advised people uh, not uh, to mix with others, particularly indoors over Christmas, if they can possibly avoid it. And that continues to be the advice I would uh, give to people. If you can get through this Christmas without seeing loved ones, if you have to see them, uh, try to see them outdoors, but you know, we, we need to make sure that we are not giving the virus uh, chances to spread. Which takes me on to the second part of Willie Rennie's question. Sometimes, you know, and I am uh, as, as guilty of this as anybody, I've gone through much of the last 10 months uh, you know, urging my clinical advisors to give me as much complicated, in-depth information about the science behind all of this as possible. Uh, and that's understandable for all of us. But actually, there are moments where you have to accept that at heart, this is not complicated. This is an infectious virus. And what uh, the scientists will tell you is that it spreads when people come together and give it the opportunity to spread. Uh, and that will happen in pubs and restaurants. It will happen uh, in people's own homes. It will happen if we allow it to in care homes, uh, in hospitals. Uh, and it will happen uh, in all sorts of settings. So what we need to do is cut out uh, those unnecessary, and unnecessary is perhaps not the best word to use because most of us think just coming together with loved ones is a necessary part of life. But, you know, we have to go to work. Sometimes, right now, uh, we want children to be in school, so we have to try and cut out all of the other interactions that we don't have to have in order to stop the virus spreading. That is, you know, 
impossibly tough for people. I know it is. But for the remainder of this winter, it is necessary in order to get through and get further into the vaccination programme uh, with as little impact uh, of this virus as possible. Throughout the pandemic and continuing today, Scotland's Community Radio brings you great programming right across the country. Scotland's Community Radio could not survive without its volunteers. This year, key contributors at two of our stations have won prizes in the National Community Radio Awards. Congratulations to the female presenter of the year, who is Fiona McNeil at DCR in Dunoon. Fiona wins gold. And also congratulations to Alec Ahrens at K107 in Kirkcaldy. Alec wins bronze as Volunteer of the Year. Thanks to everyone who helps to take our sector to the heart of our communities nationwide. You're listening to The Week in Holyrood. I'm Charles Fletcher. And coming up in the next half hour, meet the First Minister behind the scenes for our annual fireside chat with Nicola Sturgeon. Now to Brexit, and before I finish this sentence, it may be out of date. The Brits generally say things move slowly in Europe. In reality, change can happen rapidly. As it stands right now, we are 98% there on a deal. What's holding us back is fishing and what's referred to as the level playing field. For coverage, we join my colleague Brent Goff at Deutsche Welle News in Berlin after these words from the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. She says there is a path towards a deal, but it's very narrow. So we're talking about a new beginning with old friends, but we should also be clear from the 1st of January on, and this is in three weeks, the UK will be a third country to the European Union. That was the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen giving the UK a post-Brexit reality check. On Sunday, another self-imposed deadline blew by. This one to secure a trade deal before Britain leaves the EU's single market on January 1st. Von der Leyen and UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, they've agreed to extend the talks, pledging to go an extra mile. But the path forward, it is narrow, and with just two weeks to negotiate, time is running out. This is what the EU's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, tweeted today. As talks continue in Brussels, the EU Commission is preparing for, quote, all eventualities. And there are lots of them. Let's go to DW's Charlotte Chelsea-Pill now. She is on the story for us tonight in London. Good evening to you, Charlotte. After what happened in Brussels, is the UK government, is it now preparing for a no deal, or do they still think that a, a trade deal is possible? Well, Brent, up until yesterday when we heard that that deadline was missed and the negotiations are set to continue, the talk coming from both sides was that no deal was looking like the very likely outcome of these uh, negotiations. Then, though, Ursula von der Leyen, who we heard just there from the EU Commission, put out a statement saying talks uh, would continue. She said that they had been constructive and that they had been uh, useful, buoying hopes for many who are hoping for uh, a deal to be the outcome of these negotiations. But as has happened so many times, Brent, then Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister here, came out with his own statement, pouring a little bit of cold water on that. He said just yesterday in his own words, well, if Ursula, Ursula von der Leyen, is optimistic, then that's great. But there are still uh, big gaps on several key issues. And Brent, they're the key issues that have been plaguing these talks for so many weeks now. The issue of, of EU fishing, access to UK waters, the so-called level playing field. That's the issue of, of competition between EU and UK uh, companies. DW's Charlotte Chelsea-Pill on the story for us tonight in London. And as always, Charlotte, thank you. This week, the Public Health Minister, Joe Fitzpatrick, was urged to quit after the latest drug death figures were released. The National Records of Scotland show that last year, 1,264 people died from drugs misuse. That's an increase of 77 people from 2018 and a rise of 6%. Shadow Health Secretary Monica Lennon says Joe Fitzpatrick has presided over what she calls a dreadful record and adds, his time is up. I know enough from family experience that the first step towards recovery from addiction begins with recognising and admitting there is a problem. However, what we're hearing from the Public Health Minister today 
still sounds to me like denial. The figures today reveal a dreadful record that has occurred on the watch of Joe Fitzpatrick. There is still no radical plan, no urgency, no humility and no ambition for how we can reverse this trend any time soon. The public needs to have confidence in the Public Health Minister to lead us out of this human rights tragedy. These shocking statistics and his woeful response give us none. Now, the Minister may have tried his best, but it's not good enough. Minister, I'm sorry to say it, but I do believe your time is up. Will he please do the decent thing? Will he do the decent thing? Resign and please make way for fresh leadership. Minister Jervisman. I thank, thank the member for her comments. Um, her, her views are, I've, I've heard her views. Um, fortunately, I'm, I have great confidence that across Scotland, many of the people who are working at the front end of, of this public health emergency um, take, take a different view and um, continue to work really hard to turn this around. It's easy to, 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 use, to call names. It's easy to, to personalise. I'm disappointed it's come from Monica Lennon because I, while I expect it from others within our benches, I didn't, don't generally expect it from her. I'm, so I'm, the, the, these, these figures are a tragedy, so I'm, I think I'll leave it there. You're listening to The Week in Holyrood. I'm Charles Fletcher. Time now to meet the First Minister. Nicola Sturgeon leads the Scottish Government's communications initiative on coronavirus with daily briefings, often running live on TV and radio for up to 90 minutes. She brings in cabinet colleagues and senior clinicians, but the First Minister is clearly in charge and also the first in line to take the blame when things go wrong. I joined Nicola Sturgeon in the media centre she uses for those briefings at St Andrew's House in Edinburgh. And I began by asking her what keeps her going in this long journey. Probably the same thing that keeps everybody going just now, just a, a determination to get through this, to get through it as safely as we possibly can with as few people losing their lives and becoming ill as possible. Um, like everybody else, there have been dark moments in the past 10 months, days where it's felt more difficult to see the end of it and days where it's felt like a, a much, much bigger struggle than it does on, on other days. But that will be how everybody is feeling just now. And increasingly what keeps me going is that light at the end of the tunnel. You know, we've started the vaccination programme now, there's a long way to go in it, but it's hugely positive and, and the light is there at the end of the tunnel now. And, as I've said a couple of times, there's still going to be dips in the road, so there will be weeks where we might struggle to see the light, and I, I suspect over Christmas that might be one of these times as, as we get into the depth of winter. But it's definitely there, and by the spring, hopefully all of us will be feeling a lot more optimistic about things, um, and we will definitely be on the road, well on the road, back to, if not 100% normality, because we don't know exactly when that's going to come back, then something that is much, much, much closer to normality than we're living with just now. We're only a matter of days until Christmas now. Uh, you've said for some weeks, just because we've relaxed the regulations, relaxed the rules and said that you can do something, doesn't actually mean that you have to do something. Today, in briefing, you said that your central message is, please, if you can stay in your own household, stay at home, then do that, rather than make any plans to mix and mingle. How important is it to get that message absolutely clear to people? It's really, really important. And, you know, I've agonised over the Christmas arrangement probably more than any other aspect of this in, in recent weeks. And, you know, sometimes people will say, well, just ban people mixing with other households. And... If we were to do that, you know, we'd be, I think, burying our heads in the sand to the fact that there will be some people over Christmas that just find it impossible to leave loved ones on their own. So instead of doing that and then just leaving people to make up the rules that they apply themselves, we've tried to put some boundaries around that to recognise the reality in a pragmatic way, but be very clear that just because we are recognising that reality with some flexibilities, that doesn't mean we're advising everybody to take advantage of those flexibilities. So basically my starting message, my default message, is the safest way to spend Christmas this year is in your own house with your own household. And that is what I strongly recommend that people do, if at all possible. Um, if you have to meet up, do it outdoors rather than indoors and if you really feel that it is essential for you to meet people in another household indoors then keep that uh, as short as possible keep the numbers as small as possible and make sure you're following all of the other 
uh, guidelines. Wash your hands and wash surfaces, keep a distance and keep the windows open. So, you know, that's the kind of order I would I would advise people in. But it starts with if you can avoid meeting other households this Christmas, please do, because we are so close now. I hope to the end of this and none of us want to be inadvertently putting loved ones at risk. I mean, that seems pretty clear to me, and that's what I've been taking to the programme for the past number of weeks. I just wonder why we now seem to be having um, people suggesting that there is not clarity in that message. I think people will hear things in different ways sometimes, and I, I always take the view, if people feel a message is not clear, that's not their fault, that's my fault, because I... Not for the want of trying, but somewhere along the line I've not managed to make it clear enough and I will continue to, to try harder to get that right. I do think, and again I take responsibility for this as one of the, the four UK leaders, I think people have formed an impression um, that a five-day period of flexibility means that we're saying to people, use all of that flexibility for all of those five days. That is not what we're saying and that's what I'm trying to be very clear about now. It's a window of opportunity, but we're asking people to keep that window of opportunity in terms of how they behave as narrow as possible and don't open it at all if you don't have to. Um, and that's the, 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 the message that I will try to get across as clearly as possible in the period that is left to us before Christmas. You have alluded to days of despair, days when things were not quite so easy to deal with. Which day was the worst? Um, I think I would struggle to answer that question. Um, the days that have been the worst are the days where, you know, the the levels of cases are at the highest, the numbers of people dying are at the highest. Uh, these are always difficult days. Uh, but, you know, there have been days over the past 10 months that, that I felt, like everybody will have felt, you know, I, I, this is really overwhelming. Uh, standing up every day, telling people or asking people or advising people to live their lives in a completely unnatural way is, is not pleasant, it's not nice, it's not what I came into politics to do. But it's necessary just now and, and I, I, I just try to get through every day trying to do the right thing. Um, Recognising that in a situation like this it was inevitable that I would make mistakes and absolutely have made mistakes and you know, you asked me some of the, the worst times you know, having vulnerable people in care homes uh, at risk, that has been obviously very upsetting for lots and lots of people. So it's been it's been a really difficult time for everybody. It's no harder for me than it is for everybody else. I'm just, you know, fulfilling a particular role in it. Everybody's got their own role to play in. And actually, many people have it a lot harder than I do. Many people have lost loved ones, have had loved ones fall ill, have lost jobs and are really worried about how they pay the bills just now. So... You know, I every single day try to keep all of that in mind. By contrast, there was a day when you didn't quite skip in here, but it was a good news day when you were able to, you're smiling now, when you were able to tell us about a vaccine that would be rolled out pretty soon and it has begun. How was that? Well, that day was was the best day of the, the pandemic so far. I, I got a text, uh, I kind of had an idea it was coming because I knew there were meetings happening um, but I got a text uh, very early that morning uh, I got one from the health secretary quickly followed by the chief medical officer uh, they had been taking part in the Four Nations discussion where it had been uh, you know the MHRA had given the news that they had authorised the vaccine so I jumped out of bed that morning and had a, a bit of a, a spring in my step probably for the first time in 10 months and then was able to give that news here and also add to that by confirming that assuming we got the supplies of the vaccine we were expecting, the first vaccines would be administered on the 8th of December, which at that point was just six days away. Um, and that was good. I think everybody felt a lot more light-hearted that day. Um, and of course, we have now started the, the vaccination programme up until Sunday. Uh, 18,000 people had got the first dose of the vaccine. We expect many, many more over the weeks to come. There's still uncertainties. We, we don't yet have complete clarity of the supplies of vaccine. We're waiting on other vaccines being authorised. The vaccine we're using just now, the Pfizer one, uh, the first one to, to get the green light, is quite complicated in you know, the temperatures it needs to be stored at, how you have to transport it. So there's lots of logistical challenges, but I tell you, it's much, much better 
uh, spending time thinking about how we overcome the logistical challenges of solving this thing than it is of you know the logistical challenges of just dealing with the, the grim reality of it. I think that comes across, whether it's on radio or television, most certainly. If I may turn to Brexit, that should have been what was our main focus this year. It's somewhat been overshadowed, perhaps understandably. But we're days away now from the end of the transition period. Sadly, you're unable to take us away from the reality of Brexit, but how can your government mitigate Brexit? Well, we're spending a lot of time uh, right now. I wish we didn't have to because every hour we spend on this is an hour we could be spending on COVID or something more productive. But we're spending a lot of time thinking about how we mitigate the impact, uh, particularly if there is no deal and that is still a possibility. But even if there is a deal, it's going to be such a, a bare minimum deal that there will be impact. But it's also the case that I can't say we can mitigate every single aspect of this because we're not in control of all of it. We don't know you know, what the final outcome of these negotiations will be, but we're working as hard as we can to make sure that any disruption to trade is minimised, that we have supplies of medicines and, and supplies of food coming in and all of that kind of basic stuff that no government should be having to worry about beyond the realities of COVID right now. We're heading into election year next year. And all the polls indicate that uh, you're going to have a majority, more than simply win the election. If that is an endorsement of independence and IndyRef2, how quickly will that come along? I suppose the first thing I I feel obliged to do, uh, it's partly superstitious, is just remind uh, all of the listeners that I don't take the outcome of the election for granted. And I'm not just saying that because politicians are expected to say that. I, when I joined the SNP, in my much, much younger days, the first opinion poll that was published uh, after I joined had the SNP at 12% in the poll. So I, I grew up in politics, never been able to take elections for granted because we very rarely won any, and so developed a, an understanding, practical understanding of how hard you have to work to win elections, and that is true now, even after we've won quite a few just as true now as it was back then, so I, I will take not a single vote for granted. Um, if we win, and if we win, we will win on, uh, amongst other things, of course, on a proposition to give people in Scotland the choice of independence. I think as we come out of COVID, think about the country we want to rebuild after COVID, it really matters who's in the driving seat of that and who gets to take the decisions. We don't want a country rebuilt after COVID in the image of Boris Johnson and Brexiteers. We want to be able to ensure that it's the kind of country and kind of society we want to build. I'm not going to put a specific date on it quite yet because we're still in a global pandemic. You know, We're not even able to do basic things like campaign properly right now and my focus is still very much on the, the public health emergency. But I'm very clear I want it to be sooner rather than later if the people of Scotland vote for us and you know, certainly in the earlier rather than the later part of the next parliament. And you know, that's because I think it is crucial if we're going to get the next few years in building, rebuilding the kind of country we want Scotland to be right, then we need to make sure that it's elected and accountable Scottish governments of whatever party in charge of that process, not Westminster governments that often take us in the wrong direction. We have a few more, just a few more, perhaps troubled sleeps before Christmas. I've spoken to you before about this and I think I might be able to guess the answer, but could I ask what you expect and hope to find under your tree? (laughs) Like a lot of people uh, this year, I think me and my husband, we've, we've kind of said, you know, let's not you know, go overboard with Christmas presents. I think this year, more than most, people have been reminded of what matters and, you know, what matters is having your health and having your family and, and all these things. I'm starting to sound horribly cliche, but I think it is true this year. So I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not expecting great lavish gifts, and which is probably just as well because I'm going to get them anyway. Um, <laughs> I will do what I normally do and give my husband a, a short book list and uh, encourage him to buy me whatever he wants off of that. Yeah, I, I won't trust him to go and buy me whatever books he wants. I'll give him a list. Hope that he is guided by it.